You're listening to another message from Generation City Church. A couple of weeks ago, I shared with you the five pillars of our vision, and that is that I see a church hungry for God. Uh, It's up there on the screen. Um, I see a church hungry for God. Second pillar is that I see a church that's in love with the Bible. We love the Word of God, and we embrace the whole counsel of God's Word. The third pillar is I see a church unified with an unshakable love for each other. You know, unless we can love one another, forgive one another, be gracious and kind to one another, we will never see the hand of God totally move in our church. And the fourth one, I see a church that, um, um, don't tell me, don't tell me. I see a church with an unshakable love for each other. I, I say, oh, heck. I see a church with a huge heart for the lost and the broken. And I see a church that is passionate about discipleship. You know, we're not called to just get people to pray a sinner's prayer. We're called to turn them into followers of Jesus Christ. A disciple is a follower of the one that they are discipled to. And we're discipled to Jesus. And Jesus didn't say, go out and get people to accept me. He says, go out and make disciples. And that starts with people accepting him. And uh, yeah, that's a powerful song for our church. Uh, The other song we sang today, which I I love, is uh, Oh, Praise the Name of the Lord Our God. You know, there's so much gold in that song. I unpacked it verse by verse over communion a few weeks back. And, um, you know, his body bound and drenched in tears. They lay him down in Joseph's tomb. You know, what, what that says to me is that no matter what's happening in your life, not everything is always as it seems. Because the next verse says, but on the third, at break of dawn. <laughs> you know, it might seem like things are falling apart in your life, but you need to know the truth is God is for you, not against you. And we, we can't allow the circumstances of our life, what seems to be, to actually be the the thing that dictates how we live life and do life. I was walking down Hunter Street yesterday and uh, I uh, came across a body. It was covered by a sheet on the footpath and it wasn't a very nice looking scene and Draped over the body was a young man crying, sobbing. And uh, I went over to him and I just knelt down beside him and I put my hand on his shoulder. I said, are you okay, mate? Well, at that point, the two of them leapt to their feet and burst out laughing. (laughs) Not everything's as it seems. (laughs) It uh, freaked me out a little bit, to be honest. Particularly when they leapt up and burst out laughing. I said, did you guys film this? Did we film it? No, we, did. oh, we didn't film it. I said, well, at least it showed I cared. And I said to the guy who was supposed to be supposedly the dead body, I said, you're lucky, mate, I didn't give you mouth to mouth. I'm going to start unpacking our vision today. And one of the first things I see is a church hungry for God. I see a church hungry for God. I want to take you to two scriptures as we launch into this. They'll come up on the screen there. The first one is Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 30. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. 
Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, I asked Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love him with all your soul. Love him with all your mind. And love him with all your strength. It's an interesting commandment that. This is the first and foremost commandment. Jesus goes on, of course, and says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And, uh, you know, but it's an interesting command. You're to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all, every fiber of our being, that saying should be passionately in love with Jesus. Second verse is Romans chapter 12 and verse 11. Paul tells the church, never, not at any point in your life, ever be lacking in zeal. Don't ever lack in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Is that idealistic to expect us to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength, and to never, not at any point in our life, ever be... That was an email just came through, so I'm going to turn this thing to silent, if I can. Where's the button for that? Here it is. Is it idealistic for us to love him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength, with the emphasis on the word all, and to never, not at a single time in our life, ever lack zeal, ever... Now, I'll be honest, when I, I read that, I think it sounds very idealistic. It sounds unrealistic because I, like many of you, have had my down days. I've had my times when my zeal has just died on the inside of me and I've lost motivation. I've lost momentum. I've lost the drive in my inner man to keep going and you kind of just chill. You hit the lounge, you hit the bed, whatever it is, and you have those days where discouragement overtakes you, where disappointment uh, rises up and becomes the greater emotion rather than a love for God. And I read that never be lacking in zeal and love God with all your heart, all your mind, and never have a moment in your life where you don't have that at peaking at a hundred. I think it's unrealistic. But yet if I'm focused on the truth of God's word and believe that whatever God's word says, I can depend on it and rely on it, then, then I can be sure that if God has commanded us to love him to that degree, and God has called us to never have a moment where we lack zeal, then he will make a way for it to be possible in our life. We can, in fact, set ourselves up to live totally in love with Jesus 24-7, 365 days of the year without holidays and never have a moment where we lack zeal and, and, and drop in our spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Let me ask you a question. What is the most important thing in your life? Now, before you answer it with the pat answer, well, God, of course, <laughs> It's Jesus. He's the most important thing in my life. And I would particularly say that surrounded by so many spiritual people this morning because that's the answer I'm supposed to give. Before you answer, 
What is the most important thing in your life? Let me tell you, it's the thing you are most passionate about. It's the thing you are most passionate about. We are passionate about the things we love. And the thing we are most passionate about is the most important thing in our life. Let me ask you some unsettling questions. Does your earthly career, your earthly career receive more devotion, attention, resource than your heavenly calling? Because if your earthly career receives more attention than your heavenly calling, then your earthly career is more important to you than the voice of your heavenly father. Is, uh, or does your, I'm going to step on some toes. Does your sport attendance take precedence or priority over your church attendance? When Joel was little, he played soccer, and I think Margot's even shared this from the platform. And he played soccer, and we allowed him to play soccer, and he loved playing soccer, but we just didn't build into him the culture that soccer happens on Sunday, church is on Sunday. Church is our priority. Church is what Jesus is building. Church is what we are a part of. It's the main game. It's the gathering. And Joel uh, was told, his team was told, that there was a special gala coming up and it's over a Saturday and a Sunday. And Joel was only about five, I think, at the time. And he just called out to his coach in front of everybody. Will that be before church or after church? <laughs> and I thought, great answer. But does our sporting involvements take priority over our church attendance? Because if it does, that says you're more passionate about your sport than you are about the church Jesus is building. Are you more drawn to Facebook than you are to God's book? <laughs> Is the Bible the first app you put your finger on in the morning? Or is it the app with the small f? <laughs> do you spend more money on your social life than you do on your spiritual life? Told you it was relaxing today. <laughs> What's that? It's quiet. They're very quiet. Yeah. If looks could kill, though, I think I'd be in trouble right now. <laughs> do we spend more money on our social endeavors than we do on our spiritual endeavors? Are you equipping yourself to fulfill your calling? Are you equipping yourself? To follow him more diligently? Are you equipping yourself to serve him faithfully so that at the end of the day, we get a well done, good and faithful servant? You did what I asked you to do, not just what you wanted to do. The zeal for building your house outweigh your zeal for building God's house? Because if it does, that's more important to you. Time with friends take greater priority than time with God. The answer should be, what's the most important thing in our life? Well, God, of course. Should be. But I think if we were truly honest with ourselves, I don't think 
God really is the most important thing in our life. Do you socially attend church when it's convenient? Oh, it's raining today. Oh, it's cold today. <laughs> I don't think I'll go today. <laughs> Do we live by conviction or convenience? We should lead our life by conviction, not convenience. But do we socially attend church when it's convenient or are we a passionately active functioning organ in the body of Christ? It's the most important thing in your life. Let me tell you what you are most passionate about is the most important thing in your life. Even though deep down we know that God and his purpose should be the most important thing, the reality is what we are most passionate about is what holds for us the most value. How do we develop a hunger for God so that those questions can be reversed honestly? How do we develop a hunger for God that outweighs our hunger for anything else? You know, when I fast, I, I hate fasting. You know why I hate fasting? It's because I'm a foodie. Margot's not a foodie. She doesn't have to eat. She goes... Months, weeks, years without eating. <laughs> That's why she's so skinny. I was out and I, I said, uh, <laughs> poor Margot. <laughs> I was out one day in a shopping centre and she said, oh, I'm starving. Let's get something to eat. I thought, you're starving. I don't believe it. Let's get, well, I'm always ready for something to eat. Let's go find the food court. Let's see, what are you going to have? I'm going to have one of those boost juices, she said. Okay, well, that's a starter, but what are you going to have to eat? No, that'll do me. I thought you said you were hungry. I am, but that'll do me. Fasting for me, though, is a total sacrifice because I love my food and I love cooking and I love putting the spices in and I love the fat and I love the grease and I love the... But when I, when I fast, a serious fast, and when I say a serious fast, I'm particularly talking about a, a water fast, some of the most basic and nutritious of foods become very appealing to me. I can be two days into a... You know, someone told me, you know, when you do just a water fast, after three days you lose your hunger. Rubbish. <laughs> Total rubbish. <laughs> it may be true to a certain extent, but I was told that... a. Your, your, your stomach's lining have these little tentacle things called titphili. And they go crazy when you're hungry. And that's what creates the hunger pangs. And, and when, uh, when they start to uh, be depleted of food, eventually their craziness wears them out and they go to sleep. Now, that may be true, but it doesn't happen after three days. All right, the longest water fast only I've done is seven days. I've never gone longer than seven days. Um, I was starving on the seventh day. So my tithili was still... <laughs> but when I do a serious fast, something, something as basic as an apple is tantalizing. I walk past a fruit shop two days in, three days in, and, and my body is howling, and I just look at that apple, and then I start to fantasize and imagine taking a bite of that apple. And it's like you can taste it without even putting it in your mouth and you're salivating. And it's, it's like I could just sit and just so enjoy that apple right now. Carrot sticks and celery sticks are so attractive. 
you know, unsalted vegetable soup becomes gourmet all of a sudden because you're just screaming out for food. But let me tell you something. When I'm overindulging, and I do tend to overindulge, I like my savoury foods, I like my, my uh, twiggy sticks, I like salami, I love pepperoni, I love pizza, I love KFC, I love McDonald's hamburgers, I love their French fries, particularly with lots and lots of their seasoning. And when I'm just overindulging and I'll be sitting in the office at three in the afternoon and think, I could just eat a McDonald's hamburger, I'll, I'll go out and get one. <laughs> and then I go home and I go, say, what are we going to have for tea tonight? No, nah, no, I'm not even hungry. <laughs> Why, you're not hungry. What have you been eating? <laughs> when I... <laughs> scallops. They make the best scallops at the lunchbox just around the corner here. You know... When I'm indulging in foods that are not so good for me and I readily satisfy a craving for fat, I rarely consider looking for the basic and the most nourishing. We have so indulged in things that have subtly, dangerously and deceptively stolen our appetite for God. We find satisfaction in things today. We find it in gadgets today. We find it in stuff today. We find it in so many areas of our life today that it, it, it sabotages, it sucks your appetite out for God. We are too full. You know, something as a result, we have become so materially and so socially fat that we've become spiritually impotent. We've lost our cutting edge and we will sit back almost like it's a dumb thing to say, God, where is the power of your spirit today? Where is the anointing that breaks the yoke? God, where is the presence of God? Where, where are the Elijah's uh, the, 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 where is the God of Elijah that calls fire from heaven today? When the question really is not, where is the God of Elijah? Maybe the question is, where are the Elijahs of God? But we've become so fat on stuff. And then we read verses that say, greater things than I did, you too will do. I don't think I've met a person yet in my life who's ever done greater things than Jesus did. But did Jesus mislead us? Did he deceive us when he said, was he not really meaning it? Or no, you see, we are called to do greater things, but yet we're not doing greater things. And I think the reason we are not doing greater things is because we are not hungering and thirsting after the right things. But instead, we've satisfied our emotions, we've satisfied our soul to the point where we love our things with all of our heart and with all of our mind and with all of our strength and with all of our soul rather than loving God with all of those things. We are too full of ourselves. We're too full with our money. We're too full with our abilities. We're too full with our feel-good activities in life, that we have little to no appetite for God. Psalm 34 verse 8 says, Taste and see that God is good. Taste and see. The inference is on, on, on food. It's on the, 
the taste buds. It's on the fact that you can actually taste God. And when you taste something, my, my little granddaughter who turned one this last week, I don't think has had a piece of chocolate in her mouth yet. But what's going to happen when she tastes that chocolate? She'll see that this is good. <laughs> she will get a taste for the chocolate. She'll get a taste for the sweet thing. She'll get a taste. When you get a taste of God, the Bible says you will see that He is good. And when you get a taste of Him, you create an appetite for Him. But the trouble is we're so busy tasting so many other things in our life and filling our life with so many other things that, that we are, are losing or have already lost our desire and taste for God. And if we are not hungering and thirsting for God, the Bible actually says we won't be satisfied. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There is none righteous but God. So obviously it's hungering and thirsting for God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for him. They will be satisfied. Why are there so many dissatisfied Christians in church today disillusioned with their walk with God? It's because they're not hungering for the right things and God's not going to come through when there's no hunger. Let me challenge you with this thought. If you're taking notes, write this down. You will only discover that God is all you need when God is all you have. Why are there miracles in so many undeveloped countries where poverty is high, where pain and suffering is increasing rapidly? Why are there miracles in places like that, but rarely do we see them in the Western world? It comes down to the fact you will only discover that God is all you need when God is all you have. We have too much things. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. Let me read this verse to you. It'll come up on the screen. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. This woman had emotional pain. She'd lost her husband. She was devastated. She was grieving. She was in pain. Her kids had lost their father. She was lacking the support, the security that her husband would have brought to her. She was in emotional pain. She was in financial pain. Debt she could not pay. Now my husband's creditors are coming to take my sons to sell them as slaves to pay the debts my husband owed. So she was in financial pain. She was in physical pain. Her cupboard was empty. The prophet goes on and says, what do you have in your house? She said, nothing except a little bit of oil. So she was in physical pain. She and her two boys were hungry. They, they, were, they, were, they were looking for the next meal and there was nothing in the cupboard. So she was in physical pain. She was also in maternal pain, facing the very real prospect of losing her two sons. But she was also in spiritual pain. She said to the prophet Elisha, she said, my husband was a man who feared the Lord. You can hear the, the underlying question, why did this happen? Why did God allow this to happen? Why didn't God save him? Why has God put us in this place 
we're, we're hungry, we're, 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 we're grieving, we're, we've got no money to pay the bills, where it looks like everything is going to... Like she was in a place where she had nothing in her life but God. And you'll only discover that God is all you need when God is all you have. And I want to challenge you, start pushing some of the things out of your life and allow yourself to be put in a position where God is all you have. That's when you'll see God come through. Let me tell you something. When you're at the place this woman was at, you don't pray casual, routine prayers anymore. You cry out. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha. Elisha represented God in those days. They were the word of God. They were the voice of God. She needed a word from God. So she went to the source of that voice of God, which was the prophet. She cried out to the Lord. You don't pray casual routine prayers when you are in a place like this woman was at. You cry out. When you get to this place, you no longer worry about your sophistication. Oh, heavenly father. We come to thee today. We ask that thou wouldst bless us. You cry out. When you, you're in a place where, where all you've got is God, you cry out. You say, God, unless you come through, we're sunk. Unless you come through, God, I'm not going to get over the grief of losing my husband. Unless you come through, God, we're not going to be able to eat today. The kids are hungry. My heart's breaking for their little stomachs that are crying out for something to eat. And they, they don't understand why this is happening. God, for their sake, can you at least give us a miracle so they can see that you are a good God? When you're in the place that she was at, where she had the maternal pain, I'm going to lose my kids, God, unless you come through. You cry out. You, you don't care if somebody's in the next room who can hear you. You cry out. And let me tell you, it's only when you're in that place, you'll discover that God is all you need. Let me be really honest with you. I probably will be unpacking a little more detail of our journey over the last few years, over the next few weeks. But let me say this, our experience in the rapids were the worst time of my life. But at the same time, were the best time of my life. Because that experience in the rapids, which I was prophetically forewarned would happen, was designed, according to the word of the prophet, was designed to drive me to my knees. Because the prophetic word was what God is wanting to do in his church today takes more than a man and his gift. It takes someone absolutely dependent upon God. This side of the rapids, I look back and go, that was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. As painful as it was, as dark as it was, as difficult as it was, it was the best thing that could have happened to me because I was rendered powerless over so many things where I thought, God, all I've got is you. What a dumb thing to say. <laughs> all I've got is you. You will only discover that God is all you need when God is all you have. Taste and see that the Lord is good. When you truly taste God, you will never be truly satisfied with anything else. And I think the reason we have so many Christians in Western churches today who are just, 
what Danny Guglielmucci calls churchians. They're not Christians, they're churchians. They more follow the church than they do follow Christ. I, I, I believe the reason we have so many dissatisfied churchians today is because they've never truly had an encounter with the Lord. They've never truly encountered heaven. How can you truly taste him? How can you truly taste him? And this is what I'm going to leave you with. Some keys. To truly taste God, listen to me, you have to. You have to. You have to. It's a non-negotiable. You have to create space for him. You have to create space for him. And I want to give you three key space creators. Jesus showed us three ways that we could create space in our lives for God to fill. Matthew 6, verses 3 and 4. It's up on the screen. When you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That your charitable deed may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Verse 17 to 18. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your heavenly Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. When we're hungry for God to release his power and his blessing, both in and through our lives. If you're a person that just wants it in your life, but you don't want it released through your life, you're going to be very disappointed. We're called to be conduits, life carriers of God. We're not called to be, to be uh, a dam that holds it up. We're called to let it flow through us. But when you're hungry for the for the power of God to be released and the blessing of God to be released in and through your life, you have to be intentional about creating space for him to move. And giving, praying, and fasting are three keys, key space creators for that to happen. When we create these critical spaces in our lives, we set ourselves up to taste some of the best wine that heaven has to offer. When you give, when you give to the purpose of God, you create a space for him to move both in and through your finances. When you give to the purpose of God, you create a space for God to move. That's why Malachi says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Test me in this. Somebody asked me through the week, how many times in the Bible does God tell you to test him? Once. Malachi 3. Test me in this and see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out so much blessing upon your life that you won't be able to contain it. You say, I, I, I don't know what to do with all this. That's when you become someone who the blessing of God flows through. You see, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. When you determine to give God the first 10% of your earnings... You create a 10% hole in your life for God to bless you through. Now you might think, well, that's not a very big hole. 10%. What you've got to remember is God just doesn't add to your life. He multiplies. Remember the boy with the loaves and the fishes? You know, 
these people are hungry, Jesus, the disciples said, send them home so they can get something to eat. And Jesus said to the disciples, you feed them. What are we going to feed them with? It's like, God asks you that, to do something like that. You don't ask, well, how are we going to do it? You say, okay. <laughs> He's got a plan somehow. Jesus said, well, what do you have? It's interesting. That's what Elisha said to the woman. What do you have? I just have a little bit of oil. That's all. We're sunk. He said, well, then go and get as many jars as you can. And you start pouring that oil into the jars. And that oil ran out when the last jar was full. She, she asked her neighbors for jars. She went everywhere looking for jars. Jesus then says to the disciples, what do you have? And they looked around and said, well, actually, we haven't got anything. But there's a kid over there with a couple of singers. <laughs> Take a kid's lunch, eh? Well, we've got to find something. Hey, kid, come here. You really want those sandwiches? Why? Well, they look pretty good. Sardine sandwiches. If it was me, he could have kept them. I can't stand sardines. Except when I'm on a water fast, I'd eat anything. As my dad used to say, I'd eat the leg off a skinny priest. <laughs> what do you have? They said, all we have is, a, is, is five loaves and two fish. Feed the multitudes. And what happened? They fed 5,000 people. On, because God is a multiplier with what you have. What you put in his hands, he will increase. You've got to create a space for God to fill. And giving is one of those space creators. It's a space creator. What do you have? It was multiplied. Now, here's the interesting thing. At the end, when everybody was full, they took up 12 basketfuls. At the end, let me tell you something. When you give to God, particularly the tithe, and you are faithful with the tithe, and you say the first 10% belongs to God, it goes into the offer. It doesn't go into Newcastle Care looking for a tax deduction. That's really cutting the corner. The tithe comes into the storehouse. Our giving to Newcastle Care and missions, and it's over and above the tithe. Your tithe has to go into the storehouse. That's the biblical principle. So it's like, you know, we give 10% of our income. When, when you do that, he makes what you have left go even further. They collected 12 basketfuls out of two fish and five, five loaves of bread. They fed 5,000 people and had 12 basketfuls left. God is saying, test me in this. Margot and I have tithed since she taught me about tithing. We have tithed all of our married life. There were times where I said to her, I said, we can't afford to tithe. She said, we're tithing. You know, God gives us wives. They're a gift. I know. I said, Margot, we won't have enough. We're tithing. Okay, you're the boss. <laughs> I'm just a humble servant of the Lord. <laughs> and we tithe. And it's interesting. I'm still here. I'm blessed. We just had a fantastic holiday in Europe. How, how does that happen? I don't have a second job. You say, well, the church is paying you too much. <laughs> they can't afford me. <laughs> You've got to know it's a space creator. When you pray, when you pray, you know, you, you create a space for him to fill you with his tangible presence. 
a quick prayer in the car on the way to work will not create space for him to move. We are to love him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength, all of our soul. And all we give him is a quick shot of prayer in the morning on the way to work. God, hey, I love you with all my heart. No, you don't. We create a space for him. Jesus prioritized regular times where he drew aside to a solitary place and there prayed. He prayed on the run, absolutely. But he determined in his life to be a space creator for God to fill him. And he would come out of those seasons where he was in the wilderness 40 days. He was on a mountain and the disciples would look for him in the morning because they slept in and they weren't creating spaces like he was creating. But he would come off the mountain full of the power of heaven. And he said, you'll do this too. And greater things than these will you do because I go to the Father and I'm going to pour out the Spirit. He said to the disciples, don't leave Jerusalem. Create a space for me to fill you with my presence. Get into that upper room and wait in Jerusalem. Wait in Jerusalem. Create a space for God to fill. And they were filled with the power and presence of God and walked out of there and changed the world. And we're here today because of that. Do you have a daily devotional time? You know, don't make it legalistic. Prayer is not about yelling and shouting. It's, it's not sometimes you'll do that. It's about developing a relationship with the Lord. Sometimes in my prayer time, I don't even talk. I just sit there and I say, thank you for your goodness. You died on a cross for me and I am totally righteous because of what you've done. Even though I did that yesterday and I said that yesterday and I did that this morning, and I, I thank you, Lord, that I, my standing with you is not determined on what I do, but on what you've done. And I just thank him for his goodness. I thank him for his greatness. God, you've filled me with your presence and your greatness is all around me. Even though, Lord, I don't really feel it today. Feelings are not facts. Feelings are not truth. I might feel like I'm not worthy, but I am worthy because God's word tells me I'm worthy. James 4.8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I remember when I was first saved having a specific time of prayer and I was reading Acts chapter 2. And I was just sitting there saying, God, I want this. God, I want this infilling of your spirit. God, I want your power and your presence in my life. And I was so hungry as a young Christian. The things had not yet crowded out my hunger for God. I tasted of God and I wanted him. And all of a sudden, the presence of God filled the room, filled my life. And I was so convinced that if I'd run outside, I would have heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind. That's how real the presence of God was. And when I have times like that, I float through the day. When you pray, you create a space for God. The last one, when you fast. Whenever I've been serious about fasting, and when I call a serious fast, it's a water-only fast. And I've done a couple of three-day water-only fasts. I've done a couple of five-day water-only fasts. And I've done a seven-day. I've never gone longer than seven days. I don't know how these guys go 40 days because I'm convinced on the 40th day I'd still be starving. And when you're a foodie, it's horrible. But let me tell you something. When I become intentional about fasting, this is what happens. I don't usually experience much of God during the fast. All I experience is hunger. And I fantasize. 
And when I fast, all the ads for KFC come on the TV. They all seem to, they just seem to repeat themselves. You know, 9.95 Tuesdays. It's Tuesday. When does my fast finish? Wednesday. <sighs> and the TV ads make it look so good. It's never as good as what it is on TV. And then when you sit down, then you eat nine pieces of chicken for 9.95 and you just sit and gorge yourself like Jono's done. Um, <laughs> afterwards, you think, what did I do that for? But let me tell you something. After I finish the fast, my spiritual antenna is so tuned in. It's like my stomach's now satisfied. I feel content, but I'm more alert to God. Something has happened that has just created a space for him to come with a greater clarity of his voice, greater clarity in his word. I've created a space. And even the, the days and the weeks that follow, my, my spiritual insight and the sense of the wonderful presence of God is amazing. So when I give, particularly when I tithe and I'm obedient with the tithe, I'm absolutely convinced, you will never convince me tithing is not biblical. You'll never even convince me tithing is just an old covenant thing. It's not a new covenant thing. Happy to sit down and debate that with you because I, I can show you in the New Testament where tithing continues. But when I'm diligent in my giving, when I'm generous, when I tithe, when I go over and above with my missions giving and my, my Newcastle care giving and, and even now the David McCracken offering, when I go over and above and I give and when I create a space for God to come when I pray, when I draw aside into the secret place, not just in the car, and when I fast, when I am intentional about fasting, let me tell you something, God fills every one of those spaces. God reveals himself in an amazing way. I want to encourage you, embrace those three things in your life. Be diligent with it. You'll develop a hunger for God like you've never had before. Can you imagine how different your life would be if you were this hungry for God? How different our church would be if we were this hungry for God. I see a church hungry, starving for God. Give me God or I'll die. Unless you go with us, I can't go. But so often we go without God every single day. Arden Burrell said, and I'll never forget it, if God died today, many of us wouldn't know for six months. 